0: Welcome back, everybody, to Video Game Academy. Tonight, we'll be reviewing Boss Fights book's uh, edition, I guess we'll say, of Majora's Mask. Um, It's a recent publication. Uh, The author, Gabe Durham, is also the editor of Boss Fight Books. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, Steve, you did your homework. Uh, Why don't you share with the class? What did you think overall?
1: Um, I, I thought it was a very interesting way to look at the book. Um, a lot of it, I felt kind of personally attacked, especially towards the end when he was talking about kind of the interpretations and the different methods, but it actually kind of made me reflect um, more on the way that I look at games and interpret those kinds of things, and I thought it was a good overview of the history um, of how Majora's Mask was created um the the fans reception to it and the ongoing kind you know just i guess mythos that's kind of um yeah. been created about it
0: nice yeah i i thought that that was kind of the strongest part of the book actually where where there's this engagement right with um the problem of trying to interpret a video game uh and the author sort of throws out a bunch of different ways of looking at, you know, um, fan theories, uh, psychological theories uh, or pseudo psychological theories. Right. Um, even some religious stuff gets thrown in there, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, Professor Ben is able to make it here because I'm sure he's has some some thoughts on some of that as well. Um, but if not. Uh, he can kind of respond to our responses somewhere down the line, and, uh, and the whole interpretive cycle will will go on but uh but yeah, of all the different things that this book is up to, um, did you feel like it did anything particularly well, uh, or is there like a strong point um from from
1: your read? I think again, uh, to me, the most illuminating part i i guess was just kind of it helped me uh, the whole a lot of the book is about kind of like human nature um and the way that we try to find patterns in everything and we try to find some kind of deeper meeting and we're motivated by basically what food and procreation um <laughs> and that everything it, a lot of times we get so caught up in that everything has to have a point that you don't take a step back to just kind of appreciate something for what it is. Um, And that's kind of what resonated most with me. I think that's, and it was interesting that he did it through the lens of Majora's mask, which I already knew a lot about because I've just watched a lot of videos about it. Um, (laughs) So I think it was just kind of, the shift of the lens of, of what I was looking through that and just interpreting video games as a whole, I thought it was a really good uh, eye opening experience at least for me
0: yeah yeah it it's it's a really interesting dance that he's doing right he's on the one hand looking at the game uh, and the development and even the advertising and, and some stuff like that um on the other hand he's looking at other people's responses to the game, um, critiquing them to an extent, right? Uh, as far as whether they're valid, whether they're well-supported or not, or kind of what, what we're up to when we're trying to dig into the game and get some deeper meaning from it, right? Um, I thought all right. that was really interesting, and and yet I felt like I think there could have been more about the actual game, maybe? Uh, like, that, that was where I felt. Um, that the the book was strongest when he's talking about like the developers, their discussions. That that was to me the most interesting stuff, and I, I kind of wish there was more of that. Maybe a little bit less, um, like like you said, coming after uh, fans who have their their fan theories and stuff like that. But
1: uh, well, yeah, and then you know, there's even the point. You know, spoiler alert, but he goes after, or not goes after, but he he discusses <laughs> Room Two Three Seven, which is the documentary. About the 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 theories surrounding The Shining, and I'm like, why why are we talking about this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I I don't know if you've have you ever seen the the documentary Room Two Three Seven? I mean,
0: I've seen The Shining, and uh, I was pr- uh, pretty blown away by it. Like, I love it as a movie, but not to the point where I like went out and and searched you know for more documentary stuff about
1: it. <laughs> no, no, I haven't seen yeah. it. Well, it's, it's, they are crackpot theories. Um <laughs> I, you know, this book does a good job of just kind of saying, you know, I none of the theories are invalid. You're supposed to, there's what, how many different lenses that you can look through this game and interpret different things and how much your own just kind of, Mind or headspace will even affect kind of the way that you see these patterns again going back to humans recognizing these patterns and filling them in and trying to make sense of it all. Um, And I guess room 2337 is kind of famous about it about it being like crazy conspiracy theories. So I guess that's one of the extremes and it's a benign extreme that you can go to in terms of like. Conspiracy theories, even though it's not really a conspiracy, um. But uh, yeah, I'm like, what are we talking about that? It was I don't know, it was just very weird to me.
0: No, I see what you're saying. Like, in a way, it's very apropos right now. Like, if people are gonna have crazy theories, they may as well have them about kind of harmless things like movies and video games. Like maybe there's a a conversation to be had around that. Um, but uh yeah, um it did seem a little bit off topic when he would he would talk about um Twin Peaks. He he leaned pretty heavily. Yeah. I felt like on a on an interview with the director of Twin Peaks, the the TV show, and I guess there's a movie of it too. Um, he but again, he's kind of drawing on a a bunch of different media. You know, he talks about books to an extent. Um, he seems interested in uh, even like amusement parks. Right, there's kind of like a tidbit about how. The Z targeting system was like inspired by watching a, a ninja show at an amusement park somewhere. So, it's it's yeah. an interesting mashup, you know, of all this kind of pop culture and uh, different little, I guess you could call them art forms, right? Um, yeah.
1: Um. You know, talking about benign theories, I have this one friend who swears that Kel from Keenan and Kel uh, became Cisco of uh, Thong Song. Um, <laughs> hit wonder uh that's one of my favorite benign theories but getting back on track i i agree with you that to me i found the most interesting part um the behind the scenes things and i i thought it was very interesting i I don't know the guy the translator's name well wing long yeah i don't know how to pronounce his name but yeah that's what it looks like um just kind of hearing about him and and his touches on it, the fact that No Scrubs was a reference (laughs) to TLC, and just kind of learning about all those winks and nods to Western culture that have been inserted into this overtly Eastern cultured um, game, um, or Eastern cultural game.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um, That was pretty cool. and. So there's a lot of stuff that this book makes me want to go out and look up now. You know, like it. It's a pretty short book. Um, yeah, it's an easy read, I would say overall, and and it just like opens a lot of doors. Uh, one being that um, I guess it's a blog that the localizer uh, was keeping while he was working on stuff with the with the team there. Um, and so it has like his impressions of Japan and just like stuff that he's learning. Um, and I, and there's links to like a bunch of articles and things, um, from back then and from, from after, obviously to all these, you know, video theories and, and whatnot. Um, so there's a lot here that, uh, for a short book, it, I think it would be kind of a course in itself to actually go through and, and really delve into all of that, uh, extra material. Um. I yeah I don't know if I don't know if many readers will actually do that work. Um, but I think it would be pretty rewarding to uh at least follow up with a, a few of those uh loose ends.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it, it definitely piqued my interest um in in looking further into a lot of those issues. I mean I want to find I don't know if they still have them up in like an archived version, but the uh the viral or you know the whatever the ad campaign was for the game in america yeah wilson was the savior like did you ask websites like that um yeah no that was that was interesting what was the acronym that we were supposed to decipher ourselves? um it it would i think it was just the
0: word majora like spelled weird or something
1: oh Um, okay
0: yeah i'm pretty sure uh there's a few like jokes and things in the book that I felt like didn't quite land, at least with me. Um, that might've been one of them, but I maybe it's not really his fault. Uh, there, there's a few places where I was sort of taken out of the flow of the, of the argument or, or whatnot, just by the kind of the language that he would use. Um, and I'm not, sh- I'm not really sure why, but, um, but the book does really hook you like right at the start, right? It, <laughs> it's, um, it's like a creepy pasta about yeah. uh like a cursed cartridge. Like and again, I I had no idea. I'm not plugged into that corner of the internet. Um I I have heard of creepy pastas, but I've never like gotten real into that stuff. But it's a it's a cool story, and um I think it it does a nice job of sort of framing like what is weird and cool about this game, right? Is that it? really invites this kind of imaginative engagement, right? Um, so that, that's there. I, I wanted to read this quote though, um, from just a little bit after that, when, when he's really getting going. Um, he says, this book is about both how Majora was made and how it has been received by its fans. It's about what happens when we examine these two things simultaneously. He says Majora's Mask is perfect for this sort of study because, one, it's one of the most interpretive video games. Uh, and two, we know a lot about how it was made. Um mm-hmm. so again, I think it's again the two, the 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 second half of that is the most interesting to me. Um, and what I certainly like learned the most about as I was reading. Um but I guess it's a little bit ironic then that like what we're up to here is really more the one, right? Like we're more about sort of interpreting video games, uh, the first half of that where the fans receiving them and and getting into them and stuff. Um, so I think part of what this book I feel like is challenging me to do as a you know aspiring scholar is, is just to know more about how games are made. Like what's the process there and what are some of the discussions that are happening and um, just, you know, knowing more of the sort of facts uh, and not getting sort of lost in all the theories and and fun kind of interpretive
1: games that I can play,
0: right? Um, So I don't know. I I thought that was quite inspiring. Um,
1: Uh, Yeah, no, I I like that. I mean, I think with the first comment about it being the most interpreted video games, I mean, okay, I I guess that's true. I don't know about that. And I don't know why that really matters that much. yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess from the standpoint of we can see that people have interpreted it, and this is the way, and none of them are necessarily wrong, but none of them are are like necessarily right, and that's kind of the whole point, I think, of this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wish that they had focused more on how it was made. Um, yeah, rather than than focusing necessarily on the fans' theories of it afterwards. Um, I have a question. Did you ever read the the creepy pasta?
0: No, I did not seek it out and read it.
1: Uh, That's good. You would have been up for days. <laughs> the light on. You would have never played Majora's Mask ever again.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's a scary enough game as it is. And again, like I, I kind of wish there was a, a bit more about like um, what what kinds of decisions were they making uh, with this game? Because even up to this point, I feel like Nintendo is generally a pretty, you know, family friendly kind of company. Like um, Ocarina of Time was a, a bit scary, like in, in places, right? When you go to the oh, future, right? There, there are some elements to that, but they, they definitely ratchet that up uh, in Majora's Mask and not just the kind of jump scares and things or the general, you know, dark palette or whatever, but just like the the depth of some of the storytelling in Majora's Mask is a bit more mature than really anything. And um, I w- I kind of wonder about you know how Nintendo, as the parent company, uh, saw that uh, fitting in with sort of their image. Um, it, it that that was a side of this that I would be very curious about. Um, because there is this kind of tension right between uh, the the developers, um, Al right. Who's sort of in charge of this game versus Miyamoto. Who's like, you know, the father of Zelda and Mario and, and basically like the big name at Nintendo. And so there's, this is sort of an interesting back and forth between the two of them. But I think, you know, just looking if possible, looking a bit farther up the chain, like the, I don't know who the president was at that point. If it was, um, Uh, Iwata probably but like whoever's like calling the shots I I would want to know sort of their take on this as well but maybe that's just out of the reach of a a journalist or an author to to get at Um, yeah Yeah. was he still in charge at that point Iwata
1: Iwata, he came on as the president and CEO of in 2002 so that was not him it looks like it was Uh Hiroshi Yamauchi.
0: Oh Yamauchi, wow. So he was there. I I, he's been there for a long time. I think he's like in charge back when the first Zelda is coming out and stuff like that. So yeah, he he would have a very conservative attitude towards that sort of thing.
1: He was in office. His tenure started in uh 49, 1949.
0: Holy for 50 years. So yeah, so I would just be interested like how did how did that shift happen? And maybe you're right, it it might have to do with like the um the competitors, right? I guess if they're competing with Sony in a big way at this point and Sony's kind of you know, the mature system, maybe they were trying to do something a bit more uh complex as far as storytelling and, and themes and things. But yeah, I don't know. I can only speculate because I don't feel like we get enough of that. Um but that's yeah.
1: kind of my I don't know.
0: Overall, I still, like I said, I learned a ton from this book. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. Just- by, by reading this, my my impression was just they were like, we just needed another Zelda game. And <laughs> gave, and, and gave the developers, like, carte blanche to do whatever they want. Within reason, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I think had to fit with it. But you're right, I mean, it's clearly a... You know, I guess the thing is, is it really... That much dark. I mean, I guess there is a lot of death and loss in it, um, mm-hmm. and well, the, and you know. the the threat is a lot more. Uh, I don't know, visceral is the correct term, but it's it True. it's a lot more overt because you can see the moon about to collide and it does actually collide. But you know, an of time, there's always the threat that Ganon's gonna take over the world. Um, yeah. And, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't know how they necessarily it would be interesting to learn how they were able to make such a dark game like that. Especially since I think it when you're looking at the credits at the same time and like Miyamoto's working on Kirby at sixty-four and the and the crystal shards.
0: Right. And he's like, it seems like most of Miyamoto's time is spent like worrying about the name of the new console at this point. <laughs> like, yeah, he yeah. wanted to have the word joy in it really badly. And so he's like trying all these different joy-related words. Um yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh maybe maybe it's it's not helpful to push on that too much, but I think the death the death theme is so prominent, like even the fans picked yeah. up on it, right? And they that's the main theory that sort of gets Tossed around is the whole, um, you know, stages of grief, and um, what if you know Link is actually dead in this game, and stuff like that. Um, but I think you know, to look at death a little bit more, I don't know, respectfully, uh, carefully, or something. Right, uh, the ways that it comes up in the game are are really, they really deeply implicate you as the player. Uh, you, you're like taking on these dead people's role uh, and sort of playing out their stories in a, in a really weird and really cool way. Um, So I, yeah, I just think, uh, I think that author does Tolkien a disservice here. Um, I don't know. This probably didn't jump out at you, but as a big Tolkien fan, he says at one point, uh, Tolkien himself, this is his quote, disappeared up the ass of his own lore with historical, Mm Middle-earth snooze the Silmarillion, doing away with pesky conventions like character scene, prose style, and emotion, so he could offer a pure, unfettered history of a made-up world. That's wrong. I feel like that's a really bad reading of Tolkien, and I think Tolkien is one of the fantasy authors who treats death the most profoundly in his writing, and I feel like a, a better, you know, engagement there with the kinds of... um kinds of stuff we see in in really cool fantasy books um that deal with serious themes like death i think it would have made a a much richer kind of comparison with uh with what they're up to in um majora's mask here uh, as far as well yeah uh you know basically taking the lives of people and um turning them into uh a way to progress in the game. Uh it, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh It's tough for me yeah. to read and take him seriously. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, there were, I I I don't remember what he said about some of the things, but some of them I remember reading and I'm like I'm not sure I agree with that and I felt like I lost a bit of credibility. Um the yeah. other thing he's saying cuz I'm like okay, well I don't know that. That sounds right, but Obviously questioning, you know, you 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 haven't been like a hundred percent accurate. Um, and yeah, he comes off as stating almost opinions as facts themselves. So he does kind Mm of the same thing that he accuses these theory theorists of doing by interpreting other people's work and putting them in a box. Um when you know, oh yeah, well that's a that's a eastern lens. You can't say it's the five stages of grief. Because, uh, you know, that was, that's a Western thing. And it's like, there might be tones of it. And it's like, yeah, okay. Um, anyway, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting sidetracked there. But, yeah. And I think the other part is, yeah, it, it's not only that you're, like, an imposter for these people. But the transition is just so painful looking. Um, and it really hits at home that, like, yeah, you are, like, truly transforming. I mean, I think. Yeah. Because you have what three masks in the game, where you truly or I, I don't know. Do you,
0: yeah, there's Deku, really?
1: you start as Deku
0: Scrub, uh, and yeah. then you have Moran, uh, and Zora, right? But then there's there's sort of the secret, you know, final mask, uh, right. where you transform into the deity. So, yeah, depending on how you count three or four, I
1: suppose. yeah, um,
0: yeah. I remember they talk a bit about uh, somebody interviewing Al Numa. Uh, and he's like, yeah. Uh, he didn't have he didn't have like a very, uh, you know, complete explanation for why that that painful thing uh, is shown. But it did seem, you know, sort of important to uh, at least dwell on a little bit more of of the kinds of uh, pain and struggle and, and things that this game shows us. That again, I, I really. Th- thought were pretty new for that time uh for nintendo anyway um and with one of their major franchises to to kind of put that in the player's face in that way uh yeah but yeah yeah but there's a lot in this book we haven't touched on yet the um kind of the open versus closed uh model that he has uh he's got a few really interesting distinctions like this he says like uh some people are what is it story people and some people are mechanics people yes um, and and that he, he gets a lot of kind of i don't know i think he gets a lot out of that seemingly pretty uh, innocuous distinction um and then he has this distinction between like yeah open texts and closed texts where mm-hmm. you know, either either you read in sort of various kinds of meaning Uh, or you're supposed to get like one straightforward meaning from it. And so, again, I thought that was kind of, I don't know, paradoxical or something, because he calls his own book a closed text. Um, But it seems to me that it's anything but, right? It's like it's throwing out a lot of possible interpretations. Uh, That's how I was reading it anyway. Um, If he wanted to make it a closed text, I think he could have like chosen and interpretation. (laughs) And I think it would have been a less interesting book if he had. Instead, he goes to great lengths to sort of keep open um, a whole variety uh, of approaches to the game. So, yeah, yeah. But just maybe to go back to the story and and mechanics thing, um, it seemed like uh, he was a little dubious about this distinction. Like, he says it's... um... It's a reductive thing to say, but um, I, I don't know. Like, it it definitely seems like um, Aonuma, uh and who's the other? I guess the other kind of lead developer here is um, Koizumi, who, like helps write the story.
1: Um, they, they yeah, I forget. I, I I have a hard enough time remembering like English people's names when I'm reading this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Aside from. I, uh, I I can't even, pro- yeah, I can't pronounce his name. And like Miyamoto, it's like, I, yeah, I don't know. Keep tracking well, my, these people's names, but I know who you're talking about.
0: I think that's one of the great values of this kind of book though, right? Is like, we don't usually think about the people who actually make the games. Um, and yeah, this is this is still like, I guess, very reductive, right? To treat it like these, you know, two or three people like made this game. Of course they were. Helped by a huge team of people, but right. um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm sorry if I'm like mispronouncing their names or whatever. But so we've got like Alnuma kind of representing the mechanics guy approach, and Koizumi the uh, the story guy approach. Um, but it seems like they both do a lot of both things, right? So yeah, I guess it's it's a distinction that only takes you so far. But I still think it's helpful. I don't know. Anyway, what what did you think of that?
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I agree. I've I think one of the things I enjoyed about this book again the open and closed um, kind of these categorizations the mechanics versus um, story those are all things that I felt and then like he kind of laid it out there and I'm like yes that that makes sense to me I see that pattern I agree Um, because I I think growing up I was more of a mechanics person I didn't care about story um, I liked games, platformers, um, games like Punch Out where it was more like puzzles. And it's like I didn't I didn't care that uh I was little Mac and I was fighting to become the champion. I didn't I didn't care about like all the background lore. It was like I enjoyed the progressive challenge and yes, it was nice to like be crowned the champion. Um even though I don't think I ever beat Mr. Dream Man or Tyson, at least not um, on the console. I beat it up with save states on an emulator, like, a long time ago. But, my point being, yeah, like, I could see that distinction, and and you, I think, were more of a story-driven video game player. Oh, yeah. Um, you introduced me to RPGs. Um, I remember playing Earthbound with you. I remember watching you play Chrono Trigger, uh, Final Fantasy 7, um, all those games, and so you opened that the story element to... Uh, What video games could give me in terms of the story element. Um, Yeah, yeah, so I, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, it seemed like at least in the early games, it was mechanics first and then a story. And they didn't really have anything to do with each other. Um, But yeah, in in Majora's I mean, I think there's a balance and I think there's always going to be.
0: um, Right.
1: Unless you're playing the Tetris, I guess, right? Like that has no story.
0: Well, see, that's a famous example, actually, uh, that I think the author's name is Janet Murray. Um, she discusses uh, sort of storytelling and video games. Um, she's one of the big early theorists on this. And she says something about how Tetris is like, you know, showing us our anxiety about consumerism or something uh, in modern culture. So she like she finds a story even in Tetris is sort of the uh, the long and short of that. But. But yeah no i think mm-hmm. you're right <laughs> um but i think it there again i think there's something maybe a little bit more there about like again the way that uh human beings we just seek stories right we seek patterns out of um whatever we're up to we'll make a story out of it and uh that's why yeah i think getting getting caught up in the mechanics of a game will still inevitably produce a very interesting story, right? So if we could know more about some of the decisions that are made, uh, you know, stuff like the three-day cycle, right? Which is really crucial to Majora's Mask. Um, that was originally gonna be like a, a week-long thing, a seven-day mm-hmm. cycle, right? And they just decided that was ridiculous and <laughs> people wouldn't be able to keep straight what all the little uh, clock town people were up to each day. So so they, they drastically simplified it. Um, I think, uh, yeah. The other cool example of that, um, the the way that they initially thought they might have to make the entire game just take place within the castle. Um, maybe this was for the original Zelda sixty four, um, the Ocarina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so that was a, that was kind of a cool tidbit, right? And I think you mentioned right, like there might be an echo of that in the the fight in the forest temple where ganon pops out of a painting like those those kind of connections to me are so so cool um just they come straight out of like knowing interesting details and so yeah i think mechanics and story are always very closely bound up together um yeah there there are some cool details in here but that's like i just want more i want more of that kind of stuff uh as i'm going through this um yeah,
1: no, I agree. Um, oh man, I was going to say something, and now I forgot. Um, was it
0: like the Forest Temple?
1: No, it was before that. I had something I was going to say. It doesn't matter. The um, okay. thing I thought it was interesting he didn't mention is, you remember, because he, he, he talks a lot about how the mechanics drive the game, right? So you have yeah. Skyward Sword and you had the Wii Motion uh, Plus, and so a lot of the gameplay revol- resolved around using that. Um, I, I'm surprised he didn't mention the fact that you could like scream into the controller in the first one, at least in the Japanese. Um, oh,
0: yeah!
1: The, I think it's the Poles voice or something like that. didn't HD release.
0: Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, I had to bring Craig back. He went on a little walk. Um, okay. Yeah. That's fine. Wind Waker. Yeah. Please. Why? Why Wind Waker? Um,
1: oh. Because they ran out of time. Yeah. And I, that's
0: I it. didn't.
2: I did not like sailing the whole time. It was like not as involved. Like I didn't. I felt like I spent most of my time sailing and not as much doing puzzles. So, I did like the puzzles.
1: Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And even the puzzles in that game. Weren't as uh, satisfying as the ones in like previous previous games or, or future releases. They were very very simple um, in comparison. Uh, yeah, maybe
2: if they were better, then I wouldn't have minded the sailing. But it was just like so tedious.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was a barren world. There was nothing to do. Um, is
2: is the
0: one? Is it coming right after um, Majora's Mask? Is it like the immediate
2: sequel? I believe so. You I mean in the Zelda
1: timeline or
0: in terms of production at least. Yes. It was the no, no, it no. was
2: released right after. And yeah, then the princess was. one came after that, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep.
0: Okay.
1: And then Skyward Sword, yeah. And then Breath of the Wild.
0: I mean, it seems to me like they're kind of bouncing back and forth there between like the the more lighthearted Zeldas and the more like, it's almost like they're overcompensating each time um, where you know, Wind Waker is more of a bright and kid-friendly game, at least on its appearances. And Twilight Princess is like the most mature-looking Zelda up to that point.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And so the I'm- most realistic, which, you know, I think... What What did you think about the uh, author's discussion on reality versus realism? um he specifically cites to you know you go into a bomb shop as as link and you know the the guy says welcome or you know this is a bomb shop um but instead the dialogue is something like hey kid you shouldn't be here you know where are your parents um to be honest the the bomb business like we were just robbed by pirates so i'll sell you bombs if if you don't tell anyone um yeah
0: i mean yeah i loved that uh I thought the the bomb shop lady in Majora's Mask is one of the coolest like little discoveries you make like probably pretty early in the game. Uh, if you're just like walking around, you'll run into her, um, and yeah, it's not like realistic in the sense that you could imagine that happening in real life or something, but it totally like works within the world of the game. Uh, it totally draws you in. Uh, so yeah, I, I
1: don't know. I like it. And can we just talk about how ridiculous the animation is for the bomb thief and how he just runs in circles for like you know however long I forget how long it is <laughs> in game time but he's just like running around in the most ridiculous animation and then you like I mean, he easily could have gotten away if you tried
2: yeah. I should have just said acme on it <laughs> on the bomb <palm>. yeah.
1: <laughs> he's like
0: prancing around yeah it's almost like he's just trying to taunt you look at my cool bag uh,
1: yeah exactly. like he's gloating about it uh that yeah that he just gets bodied by link that place um so I have a question another thing i i I definitely didn't do this. I don't have the patience to, but um when you were playing it the first time or or after the fact, did you try to interact with everyone with the different masks? Because that was something I I didn't know. There was like unique dialogue.
0: Yeah, I, so I may be more drawn to stories and whatnot, but like I did not ever realize that either. Um, And that's cool. Like the amount of work that they put in to produce all of that extra dialogue that most players will never even know is there is uh, just really impressive. So yeah, no, I haven't done it either. I I, don't remember if we
2: did or not. My whole family played that game like together for like three years. It was literally on the TV constantly. Like you'd call our house (laughs) and you just hear the the background music um, because of the landline. And so my whole family participated in like different parts of it. So I don't ever actually beat it myself. Um, But I do remember speaking to everybody with a different mask. I I think I can remember that. But I'm not sure who figured that one out. Yeah. Such a group effort. Play it. it was fun to watch other people cuz we would just watch we'd all take turns and then like watch the game. Liz loved she'd rather watch than play. And uh mm-hmm. yeah, it was lots of fun, but it took it took a couple of years of all of us just kind of like giving different things a try before we figured it out. So, it was a good fu- family fun time. That's for sure. <laughs> good memories. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: also and-
1: that's interesting, because, it, yeah, it's like a hidden... I don't even... I, I don't know. Would you even consider that an Easter egg? Kind of.
0: I, it's just... Again, it sort of, like, adds to the feel of the world. Um, yeah, I consider it an really- Easter
2: egg, because it's not necessary, right, to beat the game? It's just a little no, extra.
0: Just for fun.
1: Yeah. It, well, and it, it, it seemed to have shades of, kind of, Earthbound was another game where... I talked to the NPCs because they were either funny. Well, I guess primarily because they were funny, so I was yeah. motivated to actually talk and see um, all the hard work that the programmers put into. Because it's like, oh well, what is this guy going to say? It's going to be something hilarious, um, right? You know, like the th- like the three mariachi band members who uh, are the slot machine in the desert.
2: <laughs> and
1: one, Thomas Jefferson.
2: Yes. Yes. And What is Earthbound on?
1: Uh, Super Nintendo? Yeah. Well,
0: originally anyway, um Yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I hesitate to call it an Easter egg just cuz um it isn't like a, a secret that you work hard to find or something. It's sort of something that's there for you to experience, but um yeah, I, I guess most players are not like gonna notice that uh, that it's there. Uh, yeah, sure if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think it adds another element of realism.
0: Right.
3: Um,
1: not 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 reality. I mean, if it was reality, you wear a mask um, as a as a fairy. You know, no one's gonna start hitting on you when you're like a little kid like that. <laughs> but it does make sense in the context of the game. Oh, these masks seem to, even the ones that don't transform you, seem to have some kind of power of tricking people um, Mm -hmm. into thinking you're something that you're not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and Corey, would you guys, like, talk about the game together, at least to, like, catch each other up on what you had found and figured out and done? Or was was it really, like, you know... Whoever is there just like plays and does their best,
2: yeah, we wouldn't really talk about it, and sometimes all of us wouldn't be there. And yeah. it was, yeah, and it took a while sometimes for us to like accomplish anything because we didn't we weren't really like once we sat down for a while, we'd get some tasks done, we'd sit down all together and try to figure it out. like what what should we do? What should we try? or like I've already tried that, And we like go over there. And so one person would be controlling it and we'd all be like um, offering suggestions. How annoying could that be, right? To the person playing, You're like I just want to do my yeah. own thing. Um
1: yeah, but it back, really helps when you got stuck. Yeah, the backseat like game players. hmm <laughs> Yes.
0: yes. Oh, no, so it. that's what I was thinking like, so in that sense, like everything becomes kind of a secret or a discovery, right? Because like you don't have the hints that come before. Um you just sort of like are dropped into this world. Uh it seems like almost the most um the truest way to play that game, right? Which is like the game starts out with you falling, uh and winding up in this strange world and just trying to like figure out what's going on there. So yeah, I think that's a really cool I, I don't know. I, I guess it could have been kind of frustrating too, but a cool well, way to- it
2: was it was nice. One time we had to go back like a couple of like like um like scenes or like different things that we accomplished. We had to go back to like pick up some hints that we'd somehow missed or like somebody that we didn't see just to get past the next part cuz it was really hard. So we got stuck a couple times really bad because of that. Yeah. But um we just kind of like backtracked and eventually cuz the notes never went away and you could like they'd replay so it wasn't like they were gone for good if you didn't see it you couldn't see it again. You could always right. figure out where you're supposed to go but you'd sometimes have to go uh back quite a ways. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean I guess the again the whole game is like doing things over and over. It's a groundhog day story essentially.
1: Um
2: Yeah, that's that's what made that fun, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay, any other
1: groundhog yeah. day like have you have you ever was it a book or a mo- Run Lola Run? Yeah,
0: it's a movie. I think it was a movie. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Have you ever
0: that, seen it? It's it's one that um, I know of, and I I think I've seen some of, but I don't think I've ever actually watched the whole thing. Um, yeah, it was interesting to me that 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 one gets name dropped here. That's the one that sort of inspired some of it. It sounds like, and not Groundhog Day. Which, again, is, like, I guess our Western, like, bias or whatever. We would assume uh, that's the more famous one. But Run, Lola, Run. Yeah,
2: who knew? Uh, What is that one about? Again, that's not about the girl who can't really see, like, faces. No, never mind. That's a different one. I think I watched that a long time ago.
0: It might involve something like that, but it's mostly about her, like, trying to... I guess save her boyfriend or something, and so she like yeah. is trapped in this like loop where she's got a, a a time limit, and she's trying different ways to to save
2: him.
1: Yeah, and a, a modern day take on that is uh, was it Happy Death Day? I don't know yeah. it.
2: Yeah, there okay. there was one recently that I saw. I can't remember the name of it. It's the worst. Well,
1: Happy Death Day was about a girl who gets killed on her birthday and then every time she dies she like wakes up again and restarts the uh, day and she's just trying to find, the whole movie's about her trying to find her killer um, to to stop them, so anyway yeah. um,
2: Have you guys seen High that, that Score documentary? That's what it was called, the one on Netflix
1: I've heard of it, I haven't watched it yet I, yeah, I have not watched it's, it.
2: Well, it talks about Marimoto or the the creator of Nintendo and it talks about Nintendo. Um, it's like a documentary and like the different influences in Japan and then in America and transitioning the whole company into like an American version that was sustainable and everything. So uh-huh. it it go, goes over all of that and um switching like uh, Mario into something that, and like Donkey Kong, and like the whole start of Nintendo, pretty much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've read a bit about that stuff. Um, I still don't know nearly as much as I would like to, uh, kind of about how how that history worked exactly. So, yeah. That's on yeah, my I'm list. sorry about
2: the names. I probably said the name wrong.
0: No, it's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm really bad. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah you are <laughs> any other thoughts about the book here before I well see if Craig is still here and then tell him to leave
2: <laughs> go away Craig um, no I'm good thank you for asking
3: yeah
1: yeah no I I, I can't think of anything else right now um,
0: okay well uh, we'll we'll revisit it maybe once more um,
1: yeah.
0: And loop Ben in on everything. Uh, yeah, thanks I'll guys. try to do my homework. Do your homework.
2: Yeah, um, I got um, Discord on the computer. I got some more things downloaded, so I should be all set. Thank you. Mm.
3: So uh, let me start by apologizing. Um, I was trying to join in on the Discord chat in my computer through a hissy fit and demanded an update which then took like an hour to actually complete um unexpectedly which is why I missed the original discord chat in the first place but Wes asked me to sort of weigh in on the the boss fight books edition of uh, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask by Gabe Durham and I did want to sort of comment on the conversation that had transpired as well as sort of adding my own little two cents um so first off, and like the first thing that I wanted that really struck me about the book and that really impressed me about the book was just how comprehensive the research was. Um, like I didn't know half of the sources that he was pulling from, either like the the fan stuff like Crazy Pasta or even some of the, you know, Nintendo mainstays like Iwata Asks. This was all very new to me. Um, and honestly, I think the most valuable thing that the the book offers at least to me is the bibliography which you know I'm, I'm definitely showing my my scholarly tendencies um you know I spend an entire lecture in one of my classes talking about how awesome bibliographies are um but seriously like he's got it divided into multiple sections depending on you know which chapter it corresponds to he's got like a whole bulleted list of all of the various um like fan theories that he that he is and like interacting with and in, in the chapter that he spends on that um he has link after link to interviews and and nintendo power articles and um like just all sorts of things as well as doing his own interview with uh, ken leong the the um american translator uh of the game all of which i thought was just stellar um like i know that wes and, and steve were were emphasizing that they really appreciated gabe durham's insights as far as like the creation of the game and the actual sort of development of the game you know the the history behind it so to speak um and that is really important really valuable stuff like that's that's very much what i was taken with as well um so first off like heavy compliments kudos to gabe durham for for doing his homework doing his research to like bringing all of these sources together um that was definitely something i noticed and admired um about his approach to to writing the book um that said let's get into some of my criticisms um I like Wes was also a little rankled by his diss on Tolkien's Silmarillion but I understand the argument anyway um like I think disappearing up his own ass is a little strong but not too strong Um, I know that a lot of people, like even hardcore Tolkien fans, tend to find the Silmarillion ponderous and troublesome, Um, so I can't get too upset with Gabe Durham about that particular observation, Um, even if I do kind of question um, that reading, especially in light of what else he has to say. Um, Because on the one hand, you know, I, I I noticed that Wes and Steve both sort of Mentioned that they, that they found the, the history, the development, the research into like the actual, you know, making of Majora's Mask to be more valuable than the interpretation or even like the interpretation matrix that, um, that Durham offers. Um, and I agree with that, but I also am not sure if that's a problem because Durham, you know, gave us too much or a problem because Durham didn't give us enough. Um, I think that's that's what I was struck by most of all. Um, it seems like Durham is sort of, his whole project, as he states and as, as Wes quoted, is sort of to bring together multiple different interpretive matrices, like multiple different ways of looking at this text and sort of weighing them in turn. Um, And the the overall, like, the reason why he calls it a closed text is because at the end of the day, he is making a polemical argument. He is saying, you know, fan theories are not grounded in most cases. Um, The five stages of grief theory is clearly not anything that Aonuma had in mind um, that was certainly not on the minds of the Japanese authors making the game. Neither are any of our Western religious sort of interpretations like, you know, Link is dead or um, like Majora represents the devil or hell or something of the nature. Um, Like that's, you know, that's totally relevant. Like he's, he's making a case here and he's making a fairly strong case at that um, but I feel like he does a disservice in so far as his own interpretive, you know, perspective is very much ruling out so many of these these other fans, you know, so many of these other theories. Um, and on some level, you know, he is right. Like, if this was never a part of the design philosophy leading into Majora's Mask, if no conscious effort was made to sort of include these different you know, references or allegories or whatever, then you can certainly make the case that they should not be, you know, the dominant way we interpret these texts. Um, That's fairly logical. I remember sitting in a long, you know, conference with a bunch of people talking about Paul Clay um, and somebody had brought up, you know, what if Paul Clay had this as an inspiration or reference and somebody else was like, no, that didn't exist at that point, or, you know, he hadn't read that book, but instead here is this other reference that he was very familiar with and it does make sense and therefore we should be looking at this more closely. Um, but the sort of interpretation, the the sort of assumptions that he's making are exactly the kind of things that I do kind of want to question here. Um, like he references Umberto Echo and and Wes and Steve talked a little bit about the the distinction between the open and the closed text and how that is a bit reductive and I can't agree more Um, like I am a huge Echo fan but I find that that distinction a bit reductive myself and would look for more nuance like I tend to think that open and closed texts that's more of a spectrum than a binary Uh, like a text can be more open or more closed but not you know just open or closed although that's probably my derrida talking and the fact that this is like squarely in my uh expertise you know the philosophy of interpretation and hermeneutics and philosophy of language and semiotics generally that's very much where i hang my hat and where i do all of my thinking um so this is particularly rankling and i imagine i'm being especially i'm participating in some some academic snottery on on that regard level and I I am kind of aware of that and don't want to like get too deep but at the same time I do want to confront this um, because there are a lot of questions that Durham kind of just takes for granted here there's this whole conversation about the way that we interpret texts closed open or otherwise um, that he's sort of making some hand-waving assumptions and then walking away Um, he addresses it to some degree but not enough or you know it The question that I'm I'm sort of led to ask is if you were going to raise these questions, why aren't you going to give them the time that they deserve? Um, like he brings up all of these fan theories, makes references to them, cites them in his bibliography, but doesn't really entertain many of them. Um, he just sort of lists them and then moves on. Like it's, it's time to put these to rest is, is basically the approach he seems to be making here. Um, and I find that problematic. Um, his ultimate conclusion is, you know, we are drawing these conclusions from Majora's Mask not because they are in the text, but because we are bringing them to the text. They remind us of the things out there, although he doesn't say this so directly. Um, and he kind of dismisses that move, where I think that it's really more nuanced than that. Um, Wes and Steve specifically mentioned that they, you know, were wondering what my thoughts were on his sort of like the, the religious uh, interpretations, like you know, is I remember when Wes and I were talking about Majora's Mask many moons ago. At this point, um, I emphasized the fan theory where you know Majora, then like the the Stone Tower is is an analog to the Tower of Babel, um, and Majora is ascending from the depths where you find Twinrova um, into the world as a sort of punishment for for sin that the gods have like punished the the people of Termina for building this ostentatious, prideful tower. Um, On the one hand, you know, I can see the argument, there is no basis in fact here. uh, That this was not what the creators had in mind. But on the other hand, I suspect that it's way more complicated than that. Like, at the very least, the art certainly has this powerful symbolism um, the phallic imagery, or the the triforce placed between the buttocks of the the stones in and, and the Stone Tower Temple, like that's evocative. Um, even if it wasn't explicitly mentioned, it was designed into the game one way or the other. And it's a complicated process. You know, somebody signed off on this. Um, the two the two developers and Miyamoto, all of them likely saw this art, saw these these assets, and said, "Yes, go forward with that." Um, they either, you know, they refined it and they made it more what it is. Um, and then when it was the version that we saw, they said, yes, this is what we we're looking for and go ahead. Um, and maybe it doesn't have an echo in Western theology or Western philosophy. That does seem to be a bit of a gross assumption on our part. Um, but it does in all likelihood, resonate with what they believe, whether it's motivated by Shinto, as Miyamoto's work often is, um, or motivated by other considerations entirely. Um, The idea of an underworld that is a dark and hellish place associated with death is very prominent in Japanese mythology as much as it is in Western mythology, You know, I suspect that part of why Western audiences resonated with Majora's Mask and interpret it in their own lights is because, in many ways, I suspect they're coming from commonalities in our shared mythology and culture. You know, deep apocryphal knowledge or deep apocryphal myths that we shared before our paths branched away as as they did. Um, Like, far be it from me to do armchair anthropology, especially when my knowledge of myth is not nearly this robust... Um, But it does seem to me that, you know, a lot of our myths do share those commonalities, Um, not just in sort of like the spread of the Indo-European mythic tradition, what used to be called the Aryans, with their, you know, sky gods and and specific gods and specific roles, Um, the sort of mythology that inspires the Enuma Elish as well as the Greek myths as well as the the Norse myths as well as the Vedas and the Hindu mythology um you have to assume that some of those assumptions bleed over into eastern cultures like uh, Shinto and uh Chinese mythology as well um there are things that like, deep in the human psyche, not to get too Jungian about it, but there are things deep in the human psyche that are common to us all, assumptions that we all make. You know, fear of death is not a Western philosophy thing any more than it is an Eastern philosophy thing. Associating death with evil, with darkness, with the unknown, as it is in Majora's Mask, we can definitely interpret that in the terms of, you know, the Tower of Babel or Christian theology, but I suspect that there's something even more universal about it. Um, and the reasoning behind that, you can you can sort of question your own right. Like, as a Christian, I tend to think that the truth of Christianity is prevalent in all cultures. Um, but you could just as easily make a naturalistic argument and say, you know, the same assumptions underlie all myth- mythological traditions. We all believe in an underworld. We all believe in death. That's not, you know, out of the pale. Um, and I think for Durham to sort of, reject fan theories is to miss that to miss it fairly in a fairly glaringly obvious way like this game was powerful connected to a lot of people not just because of what it didn't say what it, it sort of was open to interpretation but also because of what it did what isn't open to interpretation like it tapped into something deep and unnerving um something that every child who played it recognized and that every adult who still played as it now could also connect to, um, something that the creepypasta was tapping into just as well as all these fan theories. Um, it's potent stuff, and it's potent because of decisions that were made by the developers, even if they're not decisions that were commonly talked about in sort of Nintendo's world. Um, and I suspect part of that also has to do with the culture of Nintendo at the time. Um, they were probably, you know... Wes and Steve sort of speculate, you know, this was a very dark game for Nintendo at the time, you kind of have to take the next step and wonder what the reaction was. I mean, this was a game that was supposed to release in a single year. It had very little prep time. Like, it was very much flying by the seat of their pants, and everybody was in a rush, and nobody knew what they were doing. Um, But it also probably means that there was relatively little oversight. These guys could get away with stuff, because, you know... They could just pass it off past the the executives. Um, they could presumably, if they didn't make a stink about it, get it through. Um, because the idea was get this game out as fast as possible. And having this sort of dark, brooding, angsty, you know, that's sort of to reduce it a bit. This dark, potentially, you know, resonant, possibly even profound take on death, on mortality... Um, I think those themes are very prevalent and very relevant, and were probably not something that everybody was keen to talk about. Just in case it did get, you know, noticed. Um, just in case the the executives at the time, or you know, even Iwata with his with his um, interviews, um, it's entirely possible that Japanese that these, especially in Japanese culture, which is kind of quick to, you know, hide. Um, sort of like noticeable changes to to the the company archetype um i suspect that it's entirely possible that they just didn't bother to mention it because it was too late to change or if they did mention it everybody just agreed you know well there's no going back now ship what we've got um you see that in contemporary game development as well as in game development past um sometimes you just ship what you got um So I suspect that Durham's dismissal is kind of superficial, Um, and it relies on an interpretive assumption, namely that the reader isn't important to the meaning of a game, that the author is the most important voice to be heard. Um, And that's, I don't know, that one's tricky. Like, I am not a huge proponent of death of the author, I am not a huge proponent of any interpretive matrix that holds the author as absolute. Um, I tend to think that both perspectives need to be understood. Um, there are plenty of authors who don't know the what they've produced, for better or worse. Uh, authors who act like incidentally write racist or sexist themes into their into their products, into their texts, um, and then deny it afterwards. No, that's not what I meant. They say, but really, what does the text actually say? What does it tell us? Um, whatever the text of Majora's Mask is telling us, um, that something is resonating with a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different ideologies, a lot of different attitudes. Um, so I think that those fan theories, as wrong as they may be, and as much as they may not line up with the intentions um, of, you know, the, the creators at Nintendo, um, uh, Aonuma and, and Mayamoto and, and everyone else, I forget the third guy, I feel, Koizumi, Um, Koizumi, Aonuma, and, and, uh, Miyamoto, as much as that might not align with their idea for what Majora's Mask was about or what it was trying to say, Majora's Mask is saying it. Um, and, you know, with as many creators and as many artistic people, including the translator, sort of like weighing in and adding bits here and there, it kind of doesn't matter at some point what the, you know, lead designer had in mind. Um, It was certainly important, and we certainly should take it into consideration, and it is fascinating to read about it, for sure. Um, Like, Majora's Mask has always been one of my favorite video games ever, if not the favorite period, Um, and learning about its production is, to me, fascinating. Um, But it's also significant that there's only so much that we can reach, that despite all of Durham's research, all of his resources, his comprehensive and very robust bibliography, at the end of the day, what happened behind closed doors is not something that we can weigh in about positively or negatively. We cannot say what was going on in, in these people's minds, in large part because they probably weren't willing to tell us. Um, and that's not to ascribe some sort of secret motives, like there's some elaborate conspiracy, and Anuma and uh, Miyamoto and company are, are all, like, hiding um, what they what they were actually meaning what I mean instead is that they were going with something that felt right, something that maybe they couldn't even articulate themselves um, except through the medium of this game that we received. This game that is very clearly about death, about, you know, dealing with loss, with tragedy, um, that is about grief even if it is not specifically broken into the five stages of grief. Um, the themes... The roots here, the, the really meaningful bits, are, I suspect, universal, and our Western attempts to process them through a Western lens make absolutely as much sense as any person in the East attempting to process them through an Eastern lens. They tapped into something very potent and sort of subconscious, unconscious, meaningful in a way that most of us can't actually articulate. In the same way that, you know, philosophers for generations have been trying to articulate this stuff and failing, um, or succeeding with only modest ability. Um, There is no one way to talk about this stuff. And that's, I think, what makes this so potent and what makes so many fans react so well to them. Um, So to properly understand Majora's Mask, I think, especially because his germ stated, uh, stated goal was to understand this game through the lens of both its history and the fan communities and interpretation to sort of examine the complex relationship here, Um, he doesn't go far enough, I don't think. Um, If he really wants to look at how this works, then you've got to be talking about Majora's Mask not only on a historical level, not only on the level of, like, here is how it was developed, here is how it was promoted, here is, you know, what it meant for the company, here is how it's a reaction to Ocarina of Time. You know, those are all relevant, but you also have to talk about how it taps into myth. And in order to see how that works, you've got to look at all the different reactions. Um, You've got to you know, interrogate the fan theories that connected to the five stages of grief or grief, or to the Tower of Babel or to the Death of Link, or you know, any of the Eastern fan theories that don't get nearly as much traffic in the West. Um, this is insufficient, I think. Like Durham does good work. He's got a really good start here, but to properly really dis- describe this text in this way um, would require more. Um, like a really earnest effort to understand how it does fit into these paradigms that it wasn't meant to fit in. Um, How the interpretation of so many fans has come to these conclusions with such widespread agreement, either by accident or because there's something deeper at work here. Um, That's... Like, that would be a necessary part to understanding it, and I think Durham misses that. Um, Which, you know, he's probably not, like, a heavy-duty semiotician, so, you know, I can understand that. Not to get, like, put on my scholarly elitism hat here. But, you know, this wasn't meant to be that book, I guess. Like, the Boss Fight series, if, if this is any indication of what their goals are... Um, they're meant to be light and breezy. They're meant to, you know, open with anecdotes and follow through, you know, weird internet culture and, like, strange, you know, stories about the development. Um, and that's fine. That's good. Like, I, I, this works as a as a commercially viable beach-read style, you know, quasi-academic work. Um, but as a scholar, I want more. Um, I, I want a deeper a deeper dive a book you know one of those big compendious uh dry as dusts if as c.s lewis would call them like real deal interpretive omnibuses um one that you know goes on for pages and pages and pages looking at the the similarities between a fan theory and the actual game you know questioning it on a detailed basis rather than just sort of flatly dismissing it on the grounds of authorial intent um something that is willing to do the work of examining these interpretive schemes as well as um applying them in real time to what this game is saying and doing um but you know again that's a different book um so honestly like overall i have to say i like this this is this is a good move this is really important that we are doing this in video game circles um but I am also keen to see, you know, the deeper dive. Um, anyway, I've already gone on too long. This is far too much me just talking to the mic. At any rate, I don't know if we're talking about this again. Uh, I know we're planning to start near Automata in the near future, which I'm really excited about. There's there's another really deep text, um, very open to interpretation, um, that I'm looking forward to, to diving into. Um, but at any rate, I hope that this wasn't too egregious and that I added some, you know, modest insight to, you know, in, in my reaction and to, to Video Game Academy's discussion of boss fight books and what they contribute to the to video game discussion at large. Um, so I hope that helps.